The podcast you're about to listen to may contain random lines from musical theater, terrible attempts at regional accents, and a sincere discussion about mental health. You have been warned. Are you ready to start singing with your feet? Formidable! Allez, c'est parti! Juste dans la joie Une joie profonde Nos cœurs, elle inonde Cette joie, elle vient du ciel Non, nous ne sommes pas fous Welcome to Sing With Your Feet, the podcast in which we try, and I mean we try really hard, to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Always, in all circumstances, because we are learning to trust ourselves. As if that's not enough, this is the podcast in which the prime descriptor of childhood, that is, in a word, creativity, comes into its own in our everyday, grown-up, Cinderella lives. The podcast in which the question, what would happen if, gets answered over and over and over again until we start to see a very fine covering of fairy dust in every aspect of our life. My name is Lily Fields, and I'm going to be your fairy godmother for the next half hour or so. Before we get started, I wanted to read a piece of listener mail I got this week. I love hearing from you, by the way. If you have a question or an objection or a story about how you are making progress towards your ideal life, you'll drop me a line. I'll give you that email after the story. I'm not a therapist, remember. I'm not a professional anything other than a professional fairy godmother, so please keep that in mind. If you need real, professional mental health support, please get it. All right, here goes. Dear Lily, thank you for putting your podcast out there. Your voice is so nice, you could put me to sleep. <laughs> I mean that in a good way. <laughs> Thanks, I guess. Na, na, na. Oh, okay, wait, hold on. Na, 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 Lily Fields. I hope you read that in your Cinderella voice. Let me go back. Na, 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 Lily Fields. I have been catching up on the podcast over the last few weeks, and I'm confused. I love what you say about the golden rule. It's so simple, but it really is the answer to 99% of the decisions I need to make every day. So this is why I'm confused. I have been really careful lately, especially at work, about taking a second before agreeing to anything and making sure I'm actually making a decision instead of just throwing... In okay, uh... To make sure I'm actually making a decision instead of just throwing my time into something because someone asked me to. Um, by the way, this is me, Lily. People pleasers of the world, unite. <laughs> All right, I'm going to keep going with the letter. But sometimes I feel like I'm agreeing to things for ul ulterior motives. I'm starting to feel like when I ask myself what would I want someone to do for me when I have to make a decision, that maybe I'm actually asking how can I get someone to do for me what I want done for me? Did that make sense? And then actually it does make sense, but I'm going to read it again for my benefit and the benefit of our listeners. So I'm starting to feel like maybe when I ask myself, what would I want someone to do for me when I have to make a decision that maybe I'm actually asking, how do I get someone to do for me what I want done for me? All right. I do get that. We'll, I think we'll try and explain that later. Um, 
Anyway, I wonder if you have any thoughts about this because something so simple has started to feel <laughs> a little bit icky and I wanted some input from my very, very favorite fairy godmother. Love the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Love and fairy dust, Cinderella dressed in yellow and Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> I love it. P.S. And this is my favorite P.S. Luke Warford for Texas Railroad Commissioner. You and me both, girl. Uh, politics aside, I love everything about this letter. Cinderella, first of all, congratulations on putting fairy dust to work. I'm so proud of you. Proud, pr proud, proud, proud. I hope you have found a way to celebrate yourself and the progress you're making. Getting into the habit of committing by making an active, informed decision is a tough bridge to cross. And it's not without a few alligators in the water. A lot of those alligators are our own mental and emotional obstacles. People pleasing or being afraid to disappoint others is one of them. Guilt is another. Flimsy boundaries between where you start and another person ends is another one. So two of those alligators though are these nasty little creatures called fear of manipulation and its really ugly cousin, resentment. I think one of these two might be nipping at your heels right now. Now, I don't know your situation exactly, but from what you said in your letter, you said that you're taking time to actually make a decision rather than just throwing yourself into a project. I'm going to take a leap and guess that in the past, people might have asked you to do things because they knew you would never say no, or that you're the kind of person who takes things on even when you don't have the time or inclination to. That's the people pleaser thing. When you start to create a boundary, which let's be clear, is what you are doing when you start making considered decisions about what is good for you and what you want to do. Well, it dislodges a lot of feelings and not just from the people who are unaccustomed to hearing Cinderella dressed in yellow who says no, or at the very least when she says, can I get back to you on that? It also dislodges feeling in your Cinderella's heart. I want to give an example that isn't entirely relevant to the topic at hand, but I want to illustrate what I mean by dislodging feelings in our hearts. I'm going to set the stage. Remember, I, Lily Fields, your fairy godmother extraordinaire, I live in France. And one thing that the French do that mercifully Americans do not do is the traditional greeting, which is, at least in the region where I live, one kiss on each cheek. There are a lot of unspoken rules and politics around la bise, which is what this tradition is called. Now, keep in mind, my example comes from the pre-COVID period of history because things have ever so slightly shifted due to this health situation. But as an American, I have tried really, really hard to learn those unspoken rules of la bise. There are regions of the country that start on the right cheek and others that start on the left cheek. If you are accustomed to starting on the right cheek, but you go for a bees with someone who starts on the left side, you end up doing this weird little dance to avoid touching faces in a way that is less than comfortable. Or there are regions of the country where they do three kisses instead of two. Or even worse, four kisses instead of two. If you discover these things, it's already too late. Someone is coming at you for a third bees and you have already moved on to something else and that other person usually ends up offended. Or even worse, the people who go in for a fourth one after that, oh, it's just 
It's horrendously frustrating and it can make a first meeting with someone really uncomfortable. So long story longer, I used to work at a local radio station. We worked in a tiny little office packed in like sardines and everyone, every morning, would do les bises when they would get to the office. I always arrived early to work. I would arrive just after my friend and colleague, Jonathan, whom you heard all about in episode seven that was called My Intentional Valentine. And I arrived just before my other colleague, Sonia, whom you probably will hear about another time. So when I arrived, theoretically, I only had to do les bises with one person. That was Jonathan. But Jonathan and I came to a silent agreement that we were not going to waste our time on this little cultural tradition. To be fair, he grew up in Quebec, in Quebec, sorry, so his anti-bees political stance was akin to mine. Instead, we would just tell a stupid joke or in some way make the other one laugh. And let me tell you, for me, that is better than any bees anyone could ever give. I told you he was the best colleague a girl could ever have. However, pretty much as soon as I was settled at my desk, Sonia would arrive. Now, Sonia had been working at this radio station forever, since the radio station had started broadcasting. She is a woman who is deserving of much respect, and she carries herself as such. So I would always stand up when she would come into my office for la bise, out of respect. It just felt right. What inevitably happened after that, though, was that I started standing when anyone came into my office to do la bise. Not that I didn't respect my other colleagues, but they didn't have the same standing for me in my heart as Sonia did. So throughout the morning, I would stand maybe 10 times, interrupting the work I was doing to greet and chat with each person. And all in all, I probably lost 30 minutes each day on this ritual because I would stand up, lose my train of thought, have to get back into my work after we were done doing la bise. Well, one day, when I was in therapy for my self-loathing issues, which I've talked about in prior podcasts, my counselor, whose name was Georges, encouraged me to perform a small act of rebellion. Because, long story short, I didn't know how to put myself and my well-being before the pulls that other people would put on my time, talent, and treasure, which I think is what we're talking about in your letter, Cinderella. So my little act of rebellion was to not stand when people would come to my desk for the morning bees routine. That first time that I didn't stand when Sonia came into my office was, it was one of the singularly most uncomfortable moments of my life. And then as the morning progressed and the other people came in and I firmly stayed seated in my chair, the sweat dribbled down my armpits. I felt physical discomfort at setting an unspoken boundary about an unspoken rule. I don't think a single person noticed that I didn't stand to give them their morning bees, but I did. Creating this boundary dislodged tons of feelings for me. For one, it was a feeling of taking back power. I actually felt power in my office relationship with others for the first time. It was a power I had never known before. I also felt like I was objectively being a jerk because I was making people bend down to my height as I was seated in my desk chair, although it never seemed to have bothered anyone else to do this before. I did this experiment of quiet rebellion for a week. For that week, I simply lived with the dislodged feelings as they presented themselves. And I can guarantee you that I wrote volumes about what this evoked for me. Anger, resentment, and also some good things, 
Hey, I wasted less time. I got more done. I felt on an equal playing field with my colleagues. At the end of my week of experiment, I decided that I would still stand when Sonia came into my office. Because for me, this remained an extremely important sign of respect for her. But I managed to claw back almost all of the time that I would lose every day by simply staying seated when people would come in to say good morning. I learned that it wasn't about power or being rude. It was about respecting myself, my time, my work enough to not let myself get distracted in inane conversations and greetings. It came to pass that during that first week, when I saw how brutal the change was in the amount of time people spent in my office now that I was no longer standing to greet them, I felt an incredible amount of resentment towards those people who had always wasted my time in the first place. It was as if, and I'm sure that this wasn't their experience of it, but it's what my dislodged feelings tried to tell me, that actually the fact that I would stand made them feel powerful and that wasting my time made them feel powerful, and that all this time the only reason they even cared to stay in my office was because I made them feel powerful by standing to greet them. So yeah, I had some resentment there. All right, I want to get back to your situation now, Cinderella. It's going to happen that you experience some resentment about the people who didn't consider that you might not have had the time or inclination to help, but asked anyway. You might even start to see this behavior as manipulative in a way that you didn't before. Kind of like in my example, when I was angry because I had the realization that I was feeding the power trip of certain of my colleagues by standing to greet them. I need you to sit with those feelings for a little bit. Be curious about them. Examine them. Write about them. Keep on setting your boundaries. Do not let your discomfort about a safe, legal, quote-unquote, form of rebellion stop you. Write out what your feelings and what it evokes for you. Your feelings are legit, and you need to let them complete their cycles. But they aren't the whole story either. Keep that in mind. Not everyone is out to manipulate or to get you to do things that you don't want to do. But when your eyes open to the power of setting boundaries, it's really easy to see everyone as your enemy. When someone has been manipulated in the past, she develops a kind of radar for it. And sometimes we can see manipulation even where there is none, simply because we have become hyper aware. It happens that this radar can get turned inward, too, and that we start to doubt our own motivations, which is exactly what I think is happening to you. The golden rule says that we should do for others as we would want done for us. This is not, and let me underscore this, this is not a one-to-one transaction. This is not, I'm going to watch your kids today so that you watch mine tomorrow. That's an agreement. It's a negotiation. It's something also that is completely valid, but it is not the golden rule. The golden rule says, I see your situation and I want to do something to help. We talked about this compulsion to act. The philosopher princess calls it compassion, and that's love in action. When we experience this compulsion to act, then we ask ourselves, what would I want done for me if I were in the same situation? If that solution is one that you have the resources and the bandwidth to accomplish, then the decision is easy. The golden rule asks for nothing in return. It's simply a measuring stick for kindness and proportionate response. Now, 
There is another answer to your question because it sounds like you might also be facing a situation at work in which you need help and don't know how to go about asking for it. Your fear that you're manipulating others by doing what they're asking means that you need help, right? So heads up, Cinderella. Manipulation is not how to get what you need. The antidote to manipulation is learning how to express your needs clearly. With your big girl words, this, my dear, is where the rubber meets the road. It's incredibly hard for people pleasers like you and me to learn how to ask for what we need, especially those of us who have always turned ourselves into pretzels to avoid ever giving the impression of having any needs at all. Are you with me? So what I want for you to do is to practice asking for what you need in front of a mirror. And I want you to say, what I need from you is, oh, you might even have to write out the sentences first before you can actually say them, but then I want you to stand in front of that mirror and read them off the page. Practice hearing yourself say what you need. Practice looking at yourself while you're saying it. Get comfortable with speaking up for yourself. If you have to, consider past you. Consider past you as an underdog who needs someone to speak up for her, someone who is outside of you and needs someone to compassionately act on her behalf. I'm also, as I always going to do, suggest that if this dislodging of feelings gets overwhelming or destabilizing to you, that you meet with a professional counselor or a therapist who can help you one-on-one and get across that bridge and tame your alligators. Thank you so much for writing. I hope you got something out of my long-winded answer, and I'm sending a ton of fairy dust your way. Now, for the rest of us, if you are stuck in an ideal life rut and you need some help singing with your feet, drop me a line. I'm Lily, L-I-L-Y, at lilyfieldschallenge.com. That's lily, L-I-L-Y, fieldschallenge, no spaces, no punctuation, dot com. Many years ago, I had to take a bus to work. Every day, I would ride that bus down a busy downtown street between skyscrapers and I would wonder what in the world inspired someone to believe that they could or even should try to build a building that's 90 stories tall. Who was the first person to get that insane idea? Because he must have been insanely creative and probably pretty misunderstood. On that note, I want us to define the parameters of today's topic. Craft is something that many of us just lump in with those activities we gave up in order to grow up and become responsible human beings. Finger painting, making paper airplanes, the fabulous world of noodle jewelry. But I believe that craft is not something that we just outgrow. Craft is using our hands, our mouths, our imagination to make or do things that are either useful or fanciful. It's as simple as that. That's my definition of craft. Craft can be painting the garage door or it can be playing the piano. It can be wordsmithing or metalworking. It can be sewing or gluing toys back together. Craft can be making brownies or it can be doing calligraphy, clearing a mountain path or setting a beautiful table. There are, like I said, all kinds of useful crafts and there are fanciful kinds of crafts too. There are the useful kinds of crafts that can bring us immense joy to create, just like there are useful kinds of crafts that can be in a 
pain in the rear end. Either way, craft can be time-consuming, and it might require a certain amount of talent or a minimum of know-how, which means that it requires us to invest some of our three precious resources, which are, as a refresher, time, talent, and treasure. And especially if we want to get good at it, we need to invest our time. But I differentiate this from the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours to become an expert on something kind of thing, which is more akin to what I consider work. And we talked about that earlier in the season in an episode called Take This Job and Love It. Craft, for most of us, is not necessarily our profession, although it can be for those few lucky people who can parlay their craft into a salary. I lump together the topics of craft and creativity because they meld nicely together for me. It's not a 100% overlap, but they're close enough for me to want to consider them together. Now, if you, in the big, beautiful Venn diagram of your life, see craft and creativity to be separate, then by all means, separate them out. Have one day where you consider craft and one day where you consider creativity. So we said that craft was the act of making something either useful or fanciful. And this is different from, but related to, creativity, which is the human impulse to create, to question, to understand, and to improve. Creativity is fueled by curiosity. Remember I said curiosity is the spice of life. Well, creativity is fueled by curiosity. Science, which is what would happen if I put these two substances together, for example, is just as creative an endeavor as composing a work of art. So what would it look like if I mixed these two colors together? Always, what would happen if? Curiosity is what pushed the ancients to develop theories about what those lights in the night sky were. It pushed them to study the courses and the appearances and disappearances and to name the stars and the constellations. Curiosity pushed Galileo to take a telescope, which had been designed just to look further on the Earth and to turn it upwards and to direct it at the stars. What would happen if I took this telescope and directed it at the stars? I get goosebumps when I think about what those astronomers would think if they saw some of those unbelievable images that the James Webb Telescope has returned. Curiosity did that. Creativity in every generation, each generation adding their own twist to the question, what would happen if? What would happen if we used a mirrored surface? What would happen if we made the telescope bigger? What would happen if we put it as close to the sky as we possibly could? And what would happen if we launched it into space? It's the juncture of craft and creativity. The ideal life. If you've been with us for any length of time, then you know by heart the prompt, in my ideal life, I am a person who. It's what helps us to define the parameters and the overlap, the opacity, and the size of each circle on that gorgeous Venn diagram of our lives. Each theme makes up a circle of that Venn diagram. Now, I want you to do this exercise for yourself. 
answering it in as many ways as possible. Every single area of your life that is important to you should be represented with your in my ideal life, I am a person who statements. And then after you've written as many pages of those as you possibly can, I want you to go back and start teasing out the different themes, your themes. I have 19 themes. You might have 20, you might have 25, you might have 10. Now, I want to give the example of my ideal life themes in relationship to craft and creativity. So here we go. In my ideal life, I am a person who uses my creativity in productive ways, inspires other people to get creative. In my ideal life, I create meaningful, useful objects out of otherwise condemned or unused things. In my ideal life, I'm a person who reuses elastics, snaps, buttons, ribbons, wrapping paper, and hold socks. In my ideal life, I'm a person who finds peace in the act of creating, is always learning new techniques, always has a project on the burner to turn to when life gets to be too much. And in my ideal life, I am a person who proudly says, yeah, I made it. And I am a person who does not buy supplies for which I do not have an immediate purpose. So let's talk about the usefulness of creativity. If you are on the fence as to whether or not you even care to know what your fairy godmother has to say about creativity, let me cut to the chase. Whether or not you consider yourself a creative person, you need creativity. It is what will help you face uncertainty and redraw the outlines of a life that is less than satisfying. Creativity is singing with your feet. So please, just listen to what I have to say about the usefulness of creativity. My children, they can, for hours at a time, speak into existence worlds that do not exist. They may have a Playmobil toy in their hand, but the actions that that Playmobil guy is taking are being entirely invented by the sparks of creativity occurring inside their little minds. They play out scenarios together, ones that, were they to occur in real life between two brothers and not between two Playmobil guys, would result in one of them getting kicked in the face by the other. Whereas my youngest child would never dare say no to his older, more unpredictable brother when they play together. His characters are <laughs> the most antagonistic naysayers. But because they are inventing this world together, it does not bother his older brother. In this world being created by both of them together, they get an opportunity to forge different endings to conflicts. As if my youngest is testing limits by proxy and my eldest is testing out different reactions that don't involve kicking his brother in the face. This playtime ritual is more than what it appears to be. I mean, what it appears to be is an army of 40 Playmobil guys strewn around with all of their vehicles and accessories dumped out on the floor and two little boys making sound effects and barking orders at each other. What it is, though, is a psychological experiment. Our living room becomes a laboratory. One boy is saying, what would happen if I, and then adapting his responses accordingly. It is a weight room in which their resolve and their coping skills are strengthened so that they can take on the real world. So, the first of my dictums on creativity is never underestimate the power of play. It is so much more than it appears to be. This is likewise true for many creatives of the written word. The catharsis of safely exploring thoughts, memories, and ideas 
can be a healing experience. I'm not going to get into that today, but it is a topic we will look at when we talk in depth about curiosity in a few weeks. Rewriting our stories to bring healing. So here's my second dictum on creativity. Words are surgery for the soul. In an article in the New York Times about Linda Berry, who's a cartoonist and a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant recipient, she's quoted as saying, for a lot of people, being creativity and making things can be a helpful way to deal with uncertainty. Isn't that thought-provoking? I like to think that this is in part the reason why children are so effortlessly creative. Everything to a child is uncertain. I mean, they have no control or no say about where they go, what they have for dinner, what time they go to bed, or what they wear. That is, if we're doing our job as a parent. So creativity is a power tool. Creativity gives children the power to build something certain. Certain because the idea for it comes from the only place that a child fully controls, his own mind. Certainty grows with agency. The more certainty we have in our lives, the less we quote-unquote need to resort to creativity as a tool to gain some power over our lives. And that's when a lot of people stall out creatively, only to completely fall apart when uncertainty rears its ugly head again later in life. So here is my third dictum on creativity. Creativity is key to resilience. This is where creativity is relevant to even you, Cinderella. Sure, you may have everything you need. You have your job, your home, your family, your handsome prince. You have certainty today. But while I do not wish it for you, life comes at you fast. And I do not wish anything but magic and fairy dust for you. I want you to be resilient and ready for anything that comes your way. Now, I've already taken up enough of your time today, so what I want to do is get you started on your four questions, and I'm going to let you answer them for yourself. Do you remember the four questions about the ideal life? Number one, what is working? Number two, what isn't working? Number three, what do I need to think about? Number four, what can I do today to get me closer to my ideal life? I want you to answer those four questions about the theme of craft and creativity. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcatcher. And please, if you enjoy something you've heard here, share it with someone you think could use a fairy godmother too. A great big thank you to Jonathan Moulin and Seven Productions here in Mulhouse, France for the use of the song La Joie as the intro and outro to the show. Also, a special thank you to Matt Kugler who sang it and Claude Ecque who wrote it. This is your fairy godmother signing off. Just remember, it is never too late to start singing with your feet.